Hello and welcome back. So we're on episode two of this four-part series. Last week we discussed score, store concepts with the amazing Tim Radley and this week we're talking about shop merchandising and store displays which I'm really excited about. Again if you don't know Tim Radley he is owner of VM Unleashed and author of Retail in the Meaning Madness that he wrote. And it's all about the shop of the future. Really great book and loads of actual plans and case studies in that book. And we we're just talking about it there before we came on. And it's a great working tool to use if you are in the retail space. So going on to today, Tim, I suppose we're talking about shop merchandising and retail display. So I suppose going on to that and thinking about a store that you've seen, I suppose, um, where they have built a really great customer experience around a shop display. Can you give us any examples on that, that you've come across in your travels? Uh, OK, well, firstly, hello, everybody. And uh, nice to be with you again, Louise. Um, OK, you know, it's funny that when people ask you for an example, it's like when you ask a comedian to tell a joke, you know. <laughs> um, I think probably a really good place to start is an American retailer called Crate and Barrel. And um, they sell homesware. And um, in many ways, about 30 years ago, they invented visual merchandising. So I think that's why it's a good place to start there. And I'll just kind of give you a little story about that then and why it was so good. So. They had this amazing shop in Chicago on Michigan Avenue, which sadly is not there anymore. Um, but uh, it used to be, I visited it several times when I was over there and it's absolute mecca. And it was just beautifully displayed. Um, behind it, why were they invented visual merchandising was because they were the first people really to buy for space. And this is a big link with kind of visual merchandising and binary merchandising. Don't think you can just throw, you know, lots of product into space, get a visual merchandiser in there and then make it look amazing. A really good visual merchandiser will, will make it look very good, but there needs to be that thought process behind. So they were really the first people to kind of think about buying for space. And what that did was that they visualized up front a part of the store, so many linear meters, so many, uh, you know, uh, space, wall space. And they visualized how that was going to look, how it was going to be commercial, but visually how it was going to look. And then they bought the product thinking how that was going to look. And that was part of the reason why it was it was authoritative. There's kind of three three elements. I'm bringing together a lot of strands here, but three important elements with this display is one to be authoritative, two to inspire, and three to be intimate. Those were the three other three elements that I always kind of think about. So you have to go into a shop first, and you get this feeling of authority. You know, this is kind of fairly easy to understand. Um, it looks like they're selling what I want to buy. There's a good range here for me to look at. So I'm happy here. This is easy to shop. And then the next step is you kind of get a bit closer. You go, wow, look at that wall over there. Uh, wow, look at that table. Whoa, graph, you know, and you kind of really get kind of sucked in and you start, you know, getting excited about the experience. And then the third part is this is the intimacy where you really kind of move closer to the product. And that's when you kind of start exploring it and picking it up and touching it. And then you're really kind of getting close to buying the product. So um, so those are the three elements. And so Crate and Barrel had that because they planned the space. So it was organized. It made sense. It was easy to shop. You then got these kind of wow um, sets, you know, where it was like a living room or it was, uh, you know, kind of somebody's bedroom. And it was all beautifully coordinated. And then... Another great thing that they did, you can use imagery. So imagery, photography, it's all part of visual merchandising. But Crate and Barrel largely used words. And they were quite famous for having kind of white cards, which were either on the product or quite often hanging 
from uh, the ceiling on little wires and it explained the scene. So it told the story. So for example, there, I, there's one I remember, it was a beautiful room set with a fire rug on the floor. It was kind of like an autumn kind of uh, day. And they told this story just in a few words. And it was about, you know, dad's on the sofa reading his newspaper, you know, mum's there as well. The kids are playing on the carpet. One of these scenarios that doesn't exist, but we'd all like to think. And this was pre-technology, so there's no mobile phones here. But it shows the power of different elements. But also, interestingly, they were called crate and barrel because when they set up the business, they spent all the money on this amazing shop space to rent it and on the buying and merchandising. And then when they opened the shop, they couldn't afford props, you know, visual merchandising, props, tables, graphics, etc. So they literally used the crates and the barrels that the product had been delivered in. So they created something really interesting, really visual, but in fact, on a very low budget because they understood the product, they loved the product, they bought the product with a, a reason. So um, Crate and Barrel would have to be the one because it sticks in my mind, but it also, I think it very carefully and cleverly tells the story that if you want a great shop and a great display, it's not going to happen by accident, even if you're a really creative VM person. There's a lot of thought process before with the product itself to give yourself a chance, you know, to make a really, really fantastic shop. Mm. And I think that's a great example. And I think going back to what you mentioned there around, you know, using the signage and it was quite, you know, it was quite simplistic by the sounds of it. It was kind of these white cards and they used wording and stuff like that. What do you think the importance of using colour is, I suppose, and um, we look at a, a store, you know, it could be the inside or the outside and the use of kind of colours um, from even from a branding or from a store perspective. We hear a lot about, you know, red is maybe associated with the likes of food stores um, and then maybe, you know, greens are associated with maybe brands that are more uh, natural or, um, you know, so. What, what's your take on that, I suppose, you know, f- from from your experience? How important is that kind of colour piece in, in a store? Um, OK, so I think on a brand front, you're right, you know, that, um, you know, this is really a, if we begin kind of with graphic design and branding, that, yeah, colour is very, very important. Um, having said that, you know, I was always... It's a lot more than colour. So if mm. you take orange, for example, yeah. so orange, you know, easy jet, you know, good value. And that was, you, that was kind of one of the, the things they said, you know, yellow, orange, they're kind of cheaper colours. But then, you know, over here we've got Sainsbury's, which is orange, always has been orange, but that's not cheap and people go with that. So, mm. you know, colour is important, but it's not the be all and end all it's just the beginning point i think if you are a if you're a brand where it's really graphically communicated so maybe you know tv advertising logos online social media the color is critical i also think an important part of color is to differentiate so you know if you've got you know for example again here four big supermarkets they all have different colors somebody owns orange somebody owns blue somebody owns red etc somebody owns green so it's a differentiator and people get to recognize that color um i think inside shops there's so many ways that you can use color mm. and again bringing together different kind of you know threads here is there's four different kind of fundamentally types of ways that you can bring products together and you can present and tell a story. I hope we're going to talk about stories a lot because that's really the thing behind visual merchandising. Mm. So any group of products, you can present uh, a category. So a category is, let's say, let's do fashion, but let's say category. So that could be T-shirts or jumpers. So it's kind of a big display 
It's got lots of different types. And color is clearly important there because it shows range. So a good example, actually, you know, Benetton going back, you know, if you wanted to show we own T-shirts or we own sweaters or, you know, hoodies, then color is used because it actually it creates, again, that authority and that wow kind of thing. So color can be used all different colors. The opposite to that is when you combine products together uh, to create themes. So, um, you know, that could be a jumper, it could be a dress, it could be a pair of trousers, a skirt, and they're kind of all displayed together. And they have a color theme. And generally speaking, all those products, there'd be what you'd call a base color, which is quite neutral. And then there'd be a tone color, which is a development of that. And then there's a highlight color, which is the one that catches your eye. So if you're coordinating products in that way, then color again is really important because it gives you your, your kind of your feel for the whole story, but it also is used to pick out, you know, and so on and so on, because there's a lot of cleverness that goes on behind that. For example, you need the highlight color, but people don't buy the highlight color. It generally, unless you've got quite a strong, confident personality, they go for the, you know, the tone color. So an interesting example, if you benchmark as we do something like Zara, you, when you go into Zara, um, particularly spring, summer, you get color, you get pattern. If you analyze Zara, most of their products are kind of black, white, gray. They're the, like these tone colors and base colors. So again, color is really important there. You need it to create that wow. But in fact, you know, most of your sales are going to come from non-color. Uh, look at the cars, you know, going past. How many color possibilities are there when you go and buy a car? And the, the customization, any color you want, they're all black, white, silver at the moment. You would be odd red one and green one. So color is important in product to give that wow but actually it's not you know the commercial comes from more ordinary colors mm -hmm. the third story you display in a shop is like a hero product so it might be a fantastic blouse or a fantastic jumper and again then you'd use color to show that you have a range of colors so and then you have a silhouette which is kind of like a look but again in a look then color can be really important. So if you've got big categories, hero products, color is important to show you have different colors. But if you're looking at something a little bit more emotional, like themes and, as I say, silhouettes, it's about the theme. Mm -hmm. Having said that, color has changed. If you think about this idea of a, a silhouette, an outfit, Mm -hmm. um, and this is no, this is how it's changed. This is not making fun of older generations, as it were. But older generations used to buy with a colour. Um, so, you know, it, they would be in a blue day, you know, not the same blue, but they would coordinate maybe a blue cardigan with a blue uh, skirt and then, a, you know, maybe a white blouse. But it was definitely the blue look. Whereas mm -hmm. today, young people, Young people are great because they just do whatever they want, you know, but it's more about the texture. It's more about the shape. It's more about the, uh, the look of the product rather than the color and colors, you know, could be at first glance. They're not going to go together, but they do go together. So it's much, much more than color. So in answer to your very quick question, that's a big answer, but it, it's to show how complex color is. And that the brand is just the start. And in fact, the color of your shop, if we're talking about BM and, you know, displays inside, clearly the assortment is the key driver of color inside. Yeah, yeah. No, it does. I think it interlinks. I think going from outside from a branding, depending on that, you know, that particular brand going into the inside and, and looking at that from a layout piece and a standout piece. 
So looking at merchandising and obviously you touched on patterns and, you know, your hero product, maybe your best buy and using color as a differentiator to tell a story. And we're going to move on to that soon um, of that particular that particular layout um, on the on the grids or on the on the wall. Um, lighting, I suppose, would be the next one and then we'll we'll move into the story piece. So. I suppose we've talked about color and the impact that has in a visual piece to the eye and, you know, to, to that overall product piece. How important is lighting in setting the ambience in a store? What, what's the, what would be the key things you would look for, I suppose, if you were in a store when it comes to lighting? Lighting is hugely important, you know, and if you haven't got much money to spend, you have to prioritize lighting. Flooring. It's funny because, you know, most people look like that. But in fact, what's above and what's below are really important. So people do notice flooring a lot. So that has to be appropriate. And the impact of lighting is just unbelievable. It's almost one of those things that uh, a bit like editing in films and stuff. You don't notice it, the skill of it until it's done badly. And then you kind of go, wow, that's not done very well. So lighting, I mean, you get specific lighting designers. It's what they do. And they're well worth their money because, you know, they really know how lighting works. Um, in terms of, I mean, it's it's about the brand as well, what mood you want to create. So, again, you can have very flat, bright lighting, which is people see as being a cheaper product, cheaper environment. Um it's not the most pleasant, but it does reinforce this uh, this perception that these people are low price. I'm going to get some great prices, some good value in here. So, um, yeah. for example, you could com- easily confuse, you know, if you go in and you expect low prices, let's say they have an orange logo outside for sake of argument, you go in and it's got this moody atmosphere inside it with spotlights. You're going to kind of go, uh, you know, am I in the right place here? But if you go in and just get these kind of this bright light, clear, big signage. Yeah, mm. you know, this is the same shop outside and I'm in and I, I it's the same shop. So this just kind of general lighting is very important to set the mood. And then you go to, you know, an, uh, where you lower the actual ambient lighting and then you start to use spotlights. And that's when you know, the shop really kind of starts to come alive and it raises the value of what you're seeing. Using lighting, you know, it's expensive, but it adds value and people will pay a lot more for product if it is kind of beautifully lit and, you know, use the spotlights to pick out texture to kind of focus on graphics. Um, The extreme was, of course, Abercrombie and Fitch. Mm. And that and that's, I think, anybody who doesn't remember, it's not that long ago, and you still have Hollister around, which is the same brand. They literally started like a theatre. If you think of theatres, you know, the lights go down in a theatre. It's black. There's no daylight. And then you create with light. And that's that was the extreme of ambient lighting and spotlighting. And Abercrombie and Fitch so created a black space, and then they lit I mean, Louise was smiling there because she's been in ones. They were really dark, weren't they? And um, and so they then spotlight products, you know, key signage and everything. You can go too far. And I remember being in a shop, uh, I'm not um, in New York. Um, I don't spend all my time in America, but I do remember the trips because they're, they're really quite exciting. And there was, I was outside this Abercrombie and Fitch and the alarm went off. And this, this woman came out with a, with an armful of jumpers or t-shirts or something. And the guy came after her and said, what are you doing? And she said, I had to bring these outside because I couldn't see what color they were. So it was so dark inside the shop that in fact she had to come out. So ultimately, if you, if you get to that extreme where you are actually making it more difficult to shop, then clearly you've got your lighting wrong. But it, it really was a great environment and it was unique in its time. So, yeah, I mean, lighting is the most important thing. But everything we're talking about is is brand. 
There's no rule that says your lighting should be like that. You know, your logo should be that color. You should do that. If you do all those things, you'll be a fantastic success. First and foremost, it's about understanding your brand, your position, your product, price point, customer. And then you create the whole thing, bringing all these elements together so it's correct for them. You know, so you create an atmosphere and an environment for people which is which is right for them. And that's, that's the key element with lighting. Yes, I think it leads us quite nicely into into the, the storytelling piece, I suppose, and that will fall into, you know, our signage and our point of sale and all of that. Storytelling can, it can be nailed really well in some retailers and sometimes it can be a little bit lost depending on how that messaging is displayed in the store and how clear it is and, and you know, not as fussy sometimes we can make something a little bit fussy when we we look at visual merchandising when it comes to telling a story can you talk me through i suppose a process you might use in order to explain a story a vm story in a store it can be a fashion it can be a product um whatever whatever you can think of that comes to mind Okay, the the first thing is going back you know i said to those four fundamental types of display and stories so that category you know one uh, area of product a theme where you coordinate lots of products together behind a color or some other story um, the hero product and then the silhouette very simple kind of two or three products coordinated together first so that's the first thing and it is so important that you decide absolutely which of those you know, this table or this wall is. Because if you if you see a shot where that is absolutely clear, it's a, the, the customer immediately gets that's a category story, that's the theme. And it doesn't and but if you get it wrong and you kind of you if you go into shops, you think, I don't really get that wall. What's it actually got on it? And then you look at it, it's because they've kind of almost, it's not a category of products. It's not a coordinated theme. It's kind of a mixture of these. And it means that then anything you do in addition, so whether that's, uh, you know, more precise display, whether it's graphics, whether it's mannequins, whatever, you're struggling because you haven't got that initial clarity. So the, the first rule is if for every table every wall every kind of section of a wall is what is that story in terms of product and it's got to fundamentally be one of those four things otherwise you're going to struggle uh, from then on um the i mean then the store so the clarity should come through that but then you can you know you can use the mannequins you can use graphics to can then make this story more precise so, for example, if you've got this category of uh, T-shirts, it may be that it's, you know, this season's new story. It could be it's about a sustainable story, you know, which is important. It's organic cotton or something. So, again, integrating the graphics into the story, you know, is is really important. If you've got a hero product, then you may, you know, have graphics there to explain, you know, what, the features are what the benefits are of this particular kind of hero product that you've got particularly if it's let's say it's a technical thing um but you know then do you want to just have one isolated one or do you have like three or four in a row and then you can have the graphics um you know which kind of explain each one which could be a stronger story than just to have one of these repetition is a really important feature of display. Um, repetition in itself gives that authority. If you break that repetition, then you create a hero product. So difficult to say this is a hero on its own, but if you pick it out in some way from a series of products, then you know that's how you, you create the hero. So in terms of telling stories, yeah, you know, you need to begin with that fundamental principle idea of how you're going to block it. But then, you know, you can use 
whatever brings that story alive. So a mannequin would bring a look alive. Um, you know, graphics could bring a more deeper message uh, behind it. In terms of stories, the the internet has um, created a fundamental shift in the stories that you tell about products. And it's now gone back into stores in a certain way and is influencing how you must tell stories inside a shop. So if you go back to kind of pre-internet, it was each story requires a lot of products. So each story has a lot of products and you kind of needed that to visually show that inside the shop. But what the internet did, because and particularly if you're looking on a mobile uh, phone now, you see individual products. It's much more difficult to get this feeling of group. So the individual product and the story behind the individual product has become so much more important. You know, you may buy a product and then it'll say, you know, we recommend that this goes with it. But you're fundamentally on a single product. So it's gone from a story with lots of product to a product with lots of stories. And inside the shop, that means that now shops generally have, there's more opportunity to be more dynamic and to actually take a product which could be part of a category in one display. Then it could be presented on its own as just a really great product. Then it could be part of a theme. But the important thing is that each of the products in there has a really good story. And, you know, going back to if you own a, a small shop or, even, you know, a huge business, if you can't find a decent story behind any product, then it's kind of thinking, well, why should it be in the collection at all? So this whole thing about stories and say the Internet has completely shifted it and mobile that I think the reliance now is less on big groups of product to tell a story. It's a really compelling story behind individual products or at the very least, you know, kind of small groups of product. So that's that's got implications, of course, for inside the shop, particularly if you've got a young customer that, you know, wow product uh, is is really important these days with a really good story behind it. And sorry, and of course, um, sorry, there's always lots of things that come into this, but again, what that means, um, of course, people now get that story, particularly younger generations on their phone first. So for example, in Zara, which, you know, we kind of did in a project quite recently as a benchmark, a lot of people go into Zara, they already know the product. It's on their phone. They have the story. They want that product. And I know another area we are going to talk about is mannequins. And the number of mannequins in shops has reduced. Um, there's a Zara shop on the King's Road, which is a good 800 square meters. And it's got something like 15 mannequins in the ladies' wear which compared to, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago is is small. And I think one of the reasonings behind it is that the imagery, the perfection of a product story on your phone, it's very difficult to get to that same standard actually inside a shop with mannequins and visual merchandising. And also, you know, people have kind of got the story already, a lot of them, you know, off their phones. The... Imagery, graphic imagery, social media online in certain categories, certain sectors and certain age groups is having a big influence on the impact and the tools you use inside your shop to display product. Mm. Would you say, going by what you said there, we're being less creative then in store with displays because we're using less mannequins um, and there is more of a of a, of a I suppose, a rerouting almost of the customers using the digital and coming in then to get the product. Are we seeing, you know, from a fashion piece, I see it on a lot of kind of, I'm seeing a lot on um, non-fashion items, non-clothing, that the displays are more creative 
than mm. they are in the clothing space. It seems to have l- shifted a little bit. Now, when I say clothing, I'm not talking about boutiques. I'm talking about the large retailers, the likes of Zara and New Look mm. and all of that, where I'm seeing less of a focus on those in-store displays. I think it's, um, again, there's kind of going back to go forwards. So if you think VM began in Windows, Mm. And its purpose was to catch people's eye, bring them inside the shops, traditional old department stores in America in those days. And uh, once they were inside, assistants took over. So it was just limited to windows. And then it came inside to kind of focal points. So mannequins became really important. And this was kind of a quite a naive customer, which I think is really important. So you saw these mannequins and you kind of were sold the look or you really wanted that look. And then visual merchandising over the years, it became the whole shop. Mm. So, you know, every part of the shop, every wall, every table was thought about. It was conceived, you know, the crate and barrel was part of that story. So the shop was beautiful. And that then became more of a choice. You know, self-service became more of a thing. So what you've got now is this customer generally who is more confident, more informed. As we said, the Internet is all part of that. So part of the Zara story, I think, and for, for similar retailers, is the whole shop, you know, it looks great. And because it's got this clarity of story, it's got really, you know, great products. And so customers browse themselves. So I think the influence of saying these are the outfits that you should buy is less because it's more about the customer informed moving around uh, and choosing themselves, you know, what they want to buy, what they want to coordinate together. So I certainly think it's customer driven. Undoubtedly, there is probably a cost uh, I know certainly over the last few years issue in it, you know, to get mannequins really looking good and stylish, dress well. Um, you know, that's got to be done really well. We've moved way past, you know, the, the mannequins with the wigs that didn't fit and everything else. You can't do that, you know, these days. If you're going to have mannequins, they've got to look fantastic. So I certainly think this whole omni-channel one, you know, wonderful graphics. I mean, you know, showing off products and outfits. I mean, you, you got to compete with that inside the shop with mannequins. You know, it's, it's very, very difficult. So I think the whole assortment itself is more inspirational. So in terms of creativity, I think retailers are still as creative, creative retailers, but that some of that creativity is outside the shop now online and uh, various places and it's spread across the clever ways that they use the the shop space um i'll give you an, an example this was partly in lockdown but actually in normal times as well and this was john lewis but they have personal shoppers and they had a really nice still have a really nice shop in westfield in london a smaller shop uh which they opened and they more than ever they went to to uh the expertise of personal shoppers and i cannot remember the exact number but it was something like these 10 or 12 personal shoppers accounted for over 50 percent of the sales of fashion in that shop which again kind of backs up this idea that you know this is what we sell it's all really nice you know some really interesting stories beautiful individual products and we have a personal shopper who will spend some time with me, who will take me from here to here to here to here and create kind of like an outfit for me. Together, we'll do that. And then we'll go and try it on. And again, the thing with mannequins, you know, it's better to try it on yourself than to see it on a mannequin. Clearly, you get the inspiration from a mannequin. So with the personal shopping, you then go into a beautiful space and a lot of changing rooms now are really beautiful spaces. And I know you worked at uh, Next, Louise, for quite a long time. Um, in their shop design, certainly at one point, 
they overinvested in the changing rooms. So if you spent X amount per square foot on the shop floor, you spent X amount plus in the changing room because that's where it happens. So again, you, you collect from the assortment, you take advice and then you go into the changing rooms, beautifully lit. Lighting in changing rooms is, is got to be spot on. And then that's when you kind of choose your outfits and, you know, maybe your friends are there as well. And, you know, that's kind of where you, you choose what to buy. So again, maybe the creativity as well has shifted to personal shoppers. It's shifted to what happens in the changing room. I went into a shop in Barcelona and a ladies fashion shop and half the shop was merchandise and the other half of the shop was changing rooms. So it was like equal. And it was, they saw the value. It was quite a, you know, high price outfit, but not, you know, uh, luxury fashion. And it was the process that went on in the changing rooms with trying on the clothes, you know, taking a mix and matching. That was where the magic happened. And that was how they made their sales. So I think retailers, you know, creative retailers are still as creative, but where they focus that creativity and that interaction and where they tell the story of the product, you know, has shifted more to the outside and then perhaps more to the actual, the interaction with the product at the end of the day. And I think sometimes it can be forgotten that customer flow, you know, those fixtures and the layouts of those on the shop floor and the impact they have of getting us to navigate around that shop and maybe visit little nooks and corners that we maybe haven't visited before and if I just look at a supermarket model where sometimes that milk or that bread is on the the farthest part of the shop or they will move stuff around to you know change that journey of that customer piece um how important is that in a business because to me it's so important It, it 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 basically can change your conversion in a business really um when you have those fixtures placed in the right place Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, I'm again, I mean, again, there's rules behind that, you know, mm-hmm. and a key thing you would do with your assortment initially is to, is to decide, you know, are these products and product groups destination? Mm-hmm. Are these my core offer? And are these products impulse? Mm-hmm. And again, you need to do that work first and then you know, that helps you then to define your, your shop floor and where to put the products initially. So clearly your destination products would go to the back because people need those products. And so they have to make the journey to get to them. You know, I guess milk, you know, would be a good example there. Um, and then your impulse stuff, you know, the stuff that you never came in to buy that you put at the front of the shop but also you put near the walkways. So you can have a whole shop model, impulse, core, destination. But then when you actually walk around the shop, that what's close to the customer by the aisle is impulse. And then on a wall, those used to say, you know, walls tell and the floors sell. So, you know, what you put on the wall, again, attracts you into an area to shop around, but then you probably buy product actually off the, the tables themselves. There's another, um, again, it, it's, you know, kind of scientific, but um, depends on the size of the shop. But from an aisle to a wall, you can't have more than something like, you know, let's say 10 meters or so, because less than 10 meters, you get really nice story close to you where you're walking on the aisle. You get, uh, you know, your core product uh, on the floor, but you can see the wall. So the wall is pulls you in. If you have big departments from an aisle to a wall, customers don't want to go in. It's like, whoa, that's too big. That's too confusing. I get in there. I get lost. I don't want to go in there. So I'm not going to go in there. So. You're right. I mean, the first thing that, that we do when you have a shop space, particularly a large shop, is you lay down the aisles. So you break up the space into 
department depths, which mean you can have all of this impulse around the aisle, but you have really kind of good shoppable space. Somebody who was very good at this was Debenhams. Mm. So if you went into any Debenhams store where the walkway went, they basically, you know, went for kind of like a, a circular or, you know, uh, octagonal kind of uh, model. But it was really defined by each individual shop. And the reason it was where it was, was to create this kind of standard depth between where a customer was and where a wall was. And then all the fixtures and everything just fall really nicely. It's great if you're doing a shop because it standardizes everything. But it's great for the customer because they have this, uh, you know, about the journey. You know, every corner you take, you see a new wall, you see a new table. So there's always a new story that that comes. You never get lost. You never get out of your depth. There's always something to look at. So, yeah, I mean, that that was the first step, still is in many cases, is to create that walkway. Over time, I think it's become less defined. You know, the, not the classic, you know, this is carpet and this is vinyl. This is my walkway. It's kind of fading away. But you still get that logic and that kind of strategy of space and where you want customers to walk, even if it feels as though it's a little bit more free and that, you know, you can literally kind of wander anywhere. Mm. I suppose looking at what we talked about there about, you know, the flow of the customer journey and how that works from a visual merchandising piece and drawing them in and understanding where those stories are and the layouts from your walls to your floor fixtures and everything in between. Space management is something that I see big companies do really well, but smaller independent retailers don't really do it as often. And some don't really do it at all in a lot of um, cases that I've come across over the last while. It's really important, I think, to to manager, you know, and you talk about linear and linear per square footage and, you know, sales and um, per meter squared and all of these different ones. How crucial is it important, I suppose, for you and a business to really measure this, um, I suppose, in looking at, you know, where the money has been lifted from whatever fixture that might be? Well, it was, um, I mean, I. We used to do, and we still do, visual merchandising workshops, and they're like two days. Mm. And the first section was who you are, a little bit of an exercise about, you know, positioning. The second one was always about a density of display, store capacities, everything that you're talking about there. Because, mm. again, it's an absolute bedrock before you get all the creative things on top. Mm. And the thing always almost without exception, was too much product. And the volume of product, it's about, the key thing is density, okay? So option and unit density. So an option is kind of like, you know, this shirt may be in, you know, X number of sizes, you know, your T-shirt, Louise, in X number of sizes. So that's an option. The option per square foot or per square meter is the key thing because that, um, you know, that's the parameter which actually will decide whether you make money or not. So options per square meter over a whole store will, will basically give you a chance or not of being commercial. If you get that too high, too many things per square meter, you get a shop which is difficult for the customer to read, difficult to shop, and sometimes physically, we've all been there, actually even move around inside a shop. That's not good. If you get it too low, a shop feels boring and dull and empty. So for every kind of uh, you know retailer, the type of product you're selling, the options per square meter is key because as I say, one of the myths that you have to kind of just get rid of is the more product you put in a shop, the more you sell wrong. You know, there is this optimum options per square meter. Options per linear meter, 
which is, for example, you know, if you have uh, four linear meters of wall space, the options that you have in that linear space is really important because that's what the customer sees. And again, you have it too much. Oh, it's all lateral product. You can't see anything. It's not attractive. You don't have enough. It's it's dull and boring again. So these two parameters, options per square meter, is what buyers and merchandisers within a business look at because you need to get that right to make money. Options per linear meter is what visual merchandisers look at because that's what's going to be attractive or not attractive to customers. So how you convert your, without, you know, doing the hour long workshop, which is what this area was, but how you convert your square meters or your square feet into linear meters and linear feet is a really, really important process. And that comes down to things like how you use your walls, what type of fixtures that you use, how many tables, how many floor fixtures, how uh, effective each of those different types of fixtures are. So it's quite a complex process, but it does come down to those two parameters, options per square meter and then options per linear meter. Having said that, the big, big change is, of course, again, the internet. And if you're an omni-channel business, because, you know, in the early days of e-commerce, shops held the whole capacity the whole uh, assortment of any retailer, the internet had a part of it. That might sound really weird for anybody who's, you know, in their 20s or so, early 20s. Because now, it's, of course, it's completely the opposite, is that the web has the whole assortment and shops have a part of that assortment. And, of course, you know, the omni-channel model, if it works correctly, and again, next, again, best practice, to talk about them, um, you know, it's easy to get from one channel to another. So you can order it online, buy it in the shop, vice versa. So there isn't a necessity to have as much product in the shop as there used to be. And last time in our first chat, we talked about the four roles of a shop. So the shop of paradise, but also space given over to uh, more customer community activities, more space given over to click and collect and things like that. So, again, in a business like Next, where more is coming from the omni-channel model, there's less space needed and less density on the shop floor. And in fact, in, in many shops, there's a good argument that rather than product pieces per square meter, the important thing now is stories per square meter so that when you go in a shop now you don't want you know a thousand pieces but what you want are 10 really fabulous stories in that shop and that would be a combination of the product itself but maybe displays mannequins graphics etc etc um so you don't necessarily need an amazing volume of product inside the shop and so those numbers for example somebody like zara used to have you know well over two options per square meter and now it's kind of well below two options per square meter so densities are getting less but you're filling the other parts with like as we said those amazing changing rooms maybe bigger focal points of um of mannequin displays in primark uh, biggest Primark in the world in Birmingham, you know, space to allow customers to sit and with free Wi-Fi. If we're talking about, for example, in shops, what's the most important technology in a shop? One of them is free Wi-Fi for customers. And again, it all links because they're all sitting there on their phones um, doing whatever they do on their phones, but also getting their inspiration about Primark on their phones. So why worry about so many mannequins when you're giving them the ability to get inspired online as well? You know, cafes uh, as well. So, you know, in the Primark store, there's a, there's a Disney cafe and various other, you know, kind of coffee bars in there as well. So you put that all in the mix, less room for product more room for inspiration, stories, things to keep you inside the shop. 
um, personal assistance uh, changing rooms. So these are taking up more of the total space, which means the the capacity of a lot of product is coming down as well. It's an interesting mix. If you're a multi multi store, fully omni channel, selling more products online than in shops type of business, that's what's happening. If you're a smaller business, maybe just one shop, then your capacity is still very important because that is what people are going to buy, whatever you put in the shop. But even then, is just to be aware that you know the more product you put put in the more you sell isn't true you've got to find that balance between product and stories and an interaction with the shop yeah yeah i think that's really important and i think you touched on there i suppose the experience is playing its part in the visual merchandising piece because it is taking away that space possibly that you had for your clothing or your you know um whatever product you had that maybe there's a nail bar gone in there now maybe there's a coffee dock in there right now mm-hmm. and we know this increases dwell time in the store and and with with the looks of that then it'll increase hopefully that those conversion and we can see that coming through on it for a retailer this may be smaller maybe not as big as primark and they're wanting to this was have that customer experience piece can they have that do you think the experience and that visual piece together um yeah absolutely um i say it's a balance and um you know the experience with the product so it's not necessarily an either or you know if you have a coffee shop in a corner that's you know to drive traffic then that's kind of one thing that you need to consider um but i think the product should be the star so if it's something in there which helps to sell more product and it helps to make the product look more special, then, you know, great. You know, that's that's a good addition to the shop. If you're giving up space for something which is actually distracting from the product, mm-hmm. I mean, store technology, um, you know, People put in a lot of these kind of modules and things inside the shop, thinking that the customer was going to interact with them. So they took up space from product. And in the vast majority of cases, people never use these these modules. They were one of these things which were a trend and they've all disappeared, thankfully, in most cases. Um, so um, as I say, if it's an extension of the brand, an extension of the product, if it's related to customer service, if it's related to the customer trying on product, and ultimately it all goes to selling more product, getting people more engaged with the product, then, yeah, I think it's a freer freer model than it used to be. Yeah. But I'd keep very important to keep um, this is just digressing slightly but in smaller shops independent shops you must have your kpis measured mm-hmm. basic things such as you know the traffic so the number of people come into your shop um the number of people who buy you know how much they buy and know your best sellers as you know, in a big retailer, that's all kind of on a spreadsheet every morning. But in a small shop, you know, you there may not be technology involved, but you can you know how many people come into your shop. You can do a tick. You yeah. know, you can. Um, you can get the transactions. You can absolutely. Get the- you can see from the till how many things you sell. Divide that into the people into your store to to get that that conversion piece and average sale, counting up your sales. Absolutely. Average sailors, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think so, that's important to yeah. bring up. Mm. So before being able to measure, you know, whether this display mm. worked or didn't, or reducing the stock slightly did or didn't, you need to be really accurate. Mm. You know, we've all been to you know to shops and you go and say, oh, "What's your best seller?" Oh, well, these are the best sellers over there, um, because they remember one day when somebody came in and bought the whole wall. But in yeah. fact. If you look over a whole period of time, they're not your best sellers. Your best sellers are actually these. So um, vision merchandising, and you know, has always had a little bit of a problem in proving its value. If you invest in windows or if you invest in displays, does it actually drive sales? I think it undoubtedly does, but it can be quite difficult to prove. 
but the first step to proving it is to have these basic KPIs in place so you can see what affects something, you know. Let's say again, you're in your shop and you do your own windows and then you just pay some money for like a VM person to come in every, uh, you know, every week, every, every month or so to kind of do your windows. Then, you know, you need to be able to measure whether that had an impact or not. So you just need these basic kind of KPIs to see if things work and if they're, you know, if they're good value for money. Mm, yeah, I think, I think that's really, it's really interesting because I know from, from seeing some windows um, and going back to what you said uh, when you spoke about the wow pieces and then the core and the basics. So, you know, you do find in a window that you have those high fashion pieces, but they don't always necessarily sell. They might be very patterned. They're real high fashion, but they do bring that footfall in. So I think it's having a purpose or a goal um, with that window display because you could have a particular a particular range, you could have a particular supplier and there could be five or six stories and you want to put one particular story on that window because you know what, it's going to look really well visually, it's going to catch people's attention and it might increase the traffic of, or the curiosity of people coming into your store. Doesn't necessarily transcend in the sales of that particular product on the mannequin but it could increase your footfall coming in but you know that could be maybe that lead piece that lead generation piece that will bring them into the front door but I think going back to what you said there around measuring um you know visual merchandising it is so important what you said there to measure those sales and I've seen you know from changing mannequins and doing outfit bills within your wall base or whatever you know wall fixtures you have or floor fixtures the impact that has on your turnover of your business is really impactful it really does make a difference Um, and I think bringing it back to we know the bigger retailers have space management tools and they have all of these you know the replenishment systems that are real high-tech systems we talked about barcodes before I think you know and their association with the product I think it's going back to, again, you know, basic things like money mapping. So for people that don't have those systems in place, getting those, whatever it is, 15, 20 SKUs, it's maybe on your front table and mapping out how much of those 15, 20 SKUs you've lifted um, in your business over the course of two to four weeks and really going, okay, from a monetary value, I'm taking whatever it might be, two grand, three grand from that table over this period versus another table at the back of the store. Well, then I really need to be quite strategic and maybe move that to the front or move that back because my customers are telling me that they really want that. So it's it's bringing that action into place when when that's looked at, I suppose, which is which is important as well. And thanks for bringing that up because it's something that I didn't touch on and um, with the visual piece, but it's very important, I think. Well, is there um, kind of store operations, which are visual operations, oh. you know, are very important, you know, behind the the visual displays. And um, there are two things that lose sales, which is kind of like a crime, you know. It's difficult enough to get people to come into your shop, but if then you're literally giving money away. And two of the most common things were if you've got a mannequin up there, you know, which has got a great product in it and it's helping to sell, but you've got no stock, then... You're giving, you know, people coming in, wow, that's great. Oh, you don't have that. You know, you, so you have to, you know, ensure that whatever you put on the mannequin, you've got to stock because you're actually tempting people, attracting them to this product, and then you don't have it. So you're disappointing them. And the other really basic processes are replenishing what's on the shop floor. Mm. So, um, you know, you might have extra stock in the stock room. Um, but you know, if you've got a best selling product and you are, and it, let's say you're more of a sell service than you are service. And most people don't ask, you know, even in smaller shops. So mm. if you've got a best selling product and you've got a size missing, then you're quite possibly losing sales. If you've got the best selling sizes of the best selling products, not on the shop floor, you are undoubtedly giving sales away. And it could be they are in the stock room. So, 
you know, because obviously you're selling the best selling sizes, so they're disappearing. So, you know, have routines in the shop so that, you know, whenever you have no customers, as you said, Louise, you know what your 20 best sellers are in the shop. You go around and even if physically you check the displays of your top 20 best sellers and that you've got a full range of sizes on display for each of those because those are really popular sales. And if you, you know, they're in the stock room, nobody's going to buy them. And if you're part of a bigger chain, of course, that sort of thing happens. You get replenishment from the head office to come in the stock room and then go on the shop floor. So, you know, making money from retail is difficult enough anyway. So, you know, don't fall into some of the traps, which are so easy to kind of remedy and keep on top of. Uh, which are undoubtedly losing you sales and disappointing customers as well. Mm. So I suppose looking back on what we discussed, and there was so many great things there, um, Tim, and I'm going to recap a little bit on what you spoke about. So at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about, I suppose, colour and the visual aspect of merchandising. And you talked about authority, inspiring intimacy. And you gave an example with Crate and Barrel and the use of their words um, from a visual merchandising perspective and also from a graphic piece. They used white cards. And then we went on to Abercrombie then and the use of lighting in a visual piece and display in your store and not to forget about investing in that. If you do have a store already or you're setting up a new retail business, the real focus of checking your lighting and even having that in in your book or in your floor walk or whatever that might look like or your manager meeting every month, looking at the position of those spotlights when you're doing maybe floor changes or mannequin changes that the position of the floor equipment might change. So have that visual look. And a great tip for anyone out there is get your phone and look at the camera on your phone to see the spotlight hitting that product. It actually works really well. Then we moved on to looking at options per square meter and linear meter, which is so important um, from visual merchandising. And we're looking at converting their square footage um, and, and really looking at how much do I need to make per square foot in my store and having that understanding of what that looks like in monetary terms and then looking at that linear meter as well and the options that you have within that wall bay or that floor fixture and the use of your walls and your floor fixtures and I loved something you said there Tim I don't know if you picked up on it you said that um the walls tell stories but the the floor the floor sells and it's so so true so you know our walls tell the story so it could be a story about that particular product there could be a key you know print and then there's all these other colors to tie in with it but the the floor the walls or the floors sell so those floor fixtures in nearly every retail I've worked with uh, Tim it really does generate the money so do not forget about that when you're merchandising your floor um, and using that eye, that visual piece for the walls. But then we want the product accessible as well. And I think functionality or function comes into play when we're merchandising that it might look great, but can the customer reach it? Um, what's the access like? And then we moved into mannequins with stock and different things like that. So I think, again, looking at what your depth is like on your replen do I have enough size the sizes that I have do I have enough of them do I have the best selling sizes out on the shop floor if I know I'm selling 10 12 and 14 predominantly I'm not selling a lot of sixes eights or 16s well then I really need to be smart and having additional sizes out in the shop floor ready for peak trade so then I increase those bar ratios coming into peak trade it could be Christmas it could be Mother's Day whatever that might be if you have a women's fashion store so increasing those bar ratios from maybe two to maybe four on those key selling lines which is really important and um, looking at best sellers again you spoke about that and um, Tim which is really really important and not going on what you're processing through the till as you said on a really good day but having that data there if you can't generate a report looking at it from a money mapping perspective so getting those skews it could be you know those 20 skews off that wall bay or that floor fixture and um, because we know the front of the store we wanted to have those best selling lines we know that the the main 
conversion will happen there. And looking at the KPIs in your business, so footfall you touched on, conversion, we touched on average transaction value, and we touched on items per customer. So how many items are they buying off that floor fixture? Is it just the one? Maybe we don't have an accompaniment beside it. Maybe if we moved something there, we could maybe have a link sale happening there from a visual merchandising piece. So lots there for people to take away, Tim. And I just took a couple of notes as you were talking um, because I wanted to recap on it, which I thought was really important because um, I think the um, understanding of visual merchandising, I think it's really understood really well on, on big companies and they understand about bring that product and, and, you know, trying is buying. And I think you touched on the fitting rooms there. We have a conversion of 50% when we touch or feel a product. Why is that? Because we, we have a connection with the product. So I think it's bringing it back and, and you came through in all of what you said there. And I think it's really really important and I think a lot of smaller businesses that are listening um, if they can look at their data and their visual merchandising and marry the two together it would be a fantastic um, you know fantastic um, for them for the growth for their business I suppose the last thing I wanted to finish on and it was coming back to and you wrote a book as well um, Tim that we spoke about at the beginning and um, retail and the meaning madness what do you think I suppose has changed in COVID from a visual merchandising piece? Um, or do you think it's changed much? Oof. Um, well, clearly, I mean, the interesting thing is, which we all suspected, which is happening, is people are going back to stores. So yeah. you're getting quite a few pure play, pure play retailers who are struggling now or they're, they're mm. coming back. And they're actually opening shops as well. So I think the need for physical places and the need for attractive places is is more than ever. Um, so I think uh, visual merchandising, you know, <laughs> given the current context as much as anything is, is in a healthy position. It should be if the business has kind of foresight um, mm. inside shops. I think that the big... There's a big opportunity for visual merchandisers not to be closeted as just shop people. And I'd like to see in like, you know, the, the omni-channel world that mm. that those same skills of customer awareness, product awareness, brand awareness, creative skills, dressing uh, products together that, you know, there's a lot of commonality between online and in the shop. So, you know, for a business to really get good value from visual merchandising is to use those people across all the different channels. So, yeah, I think, you know, any business which um, which has the foresight, which uh, values its physical shops and visual merchandising display is more important than ever. Um, but that balance, but with the context of probably less product and more kind of experience into that product as we said with personal shoppers um, and displays to really bring that product to life you know yeah that's fantastic Tim I think and I think we've touched on that throughout thank you so much Tim I'm really looking forward to the next episode <laughs> and please listen in it's and um, you can get it on the podcast channel which will be underneath and Tim is contactable on LinkedIn he has fantastic articles there that really give you a really good insight. And um, if you're curious on any of these topics and more, and he also has his book available on Amazon. Thank you so much, Tim. I'm looking forward to next week. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's always, uh, always lovely to discuss retail with you. So, oh, everybody found that interesting. Thank you.